we believe the Lord our God is one. Father, Spirit, Son, this is our God. Today, as we continue our series on how awesome God is, we're going to be talking about the concept of the Trinity. And this is something where the Bible tries to explain how God is three, and yet he's one. My name is Ryan Lanigan, and I'm one of the adult leaders that helps lead the youth in our church. And today, I'm going to be reading the Nicene Creed with you. So there's a little uh, piece of paper inside your bulletin. Pull that out at this point. And while you do that, I'm going to read you a little bit of history about this creed. In the 4th century, church leaders assembled in Nicaea and Constantinople, which is modern-day Turkey, to clarify their beliefs about God. At this time, Christianity has been made the major religion of Rome. And just like today, there are competing and confusing ideas about theology, particularly in how the Father, the Spirit, and the Son relate to one another. This creed today, called the Nicene Creed, is a powerful summary of Christian beliefs and helps us see how each member of the Trinity is defined in the scriptures. At the end of this creed, it talks about the Catholic and apostolic church, and Catholic means universal. So today, as we read this creed, that universal doesn't just span space, it spans time. Let us join together with our, with our church fathers in, in speaking the truths of our faith as Christians. Let us read together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Well, good morning. Can we, just, can we just take a minute to say thank you to the worship team and to Ryan for that? Wow. Awesome. Praise God. Yeah, so, so good morning. My name's Del. We're going to be talking about the Trinity, and this is a unique opportunity for me because uh, it's not often that the worship and the things that come before actually preach the sermon. So, so uh, let me just tell you how this will be organized this morning to help you uh, with this. We're going to talk about uh, defining the Trinity a little further some biblical support for it, and then we're going to spend most of the time this morning on why it's important. Okay, so let me just, uh, let me just jump right in. So the Trinity, really a, really a simple word that encompasses a whole lot. So when you look at the word Trinity, 
Um, it's really three, try, that is a unity. One, three and one. And so we're going to be talking about God this morning as a trinity, supported by the scriptures, affirmed as we read from the Nicene Creed, from Christians everywhere, dating as early as the fourth century, from all traditions. Um, so I'm leaning heavily this morning in my talk on the creeds, on systematic theology, and then also on C.S. Lewis, the incomparable C.S. Lewis. And, uh, and so let me just define this for you um, in three basic statements that encompasses what Christians everywhere have believed about the, about the ontology or the being of God. So three statements here. First, uh, there is one God. This is affirmed both in the Old and New Testament. So when we talk about the Trinity, uh, we're not saying that there are three separate gods. Okay, there is one God. Secondly, God is three persons. So some would say, well, there's one God that manifests himself in three different forms. And that's not what Christian theology is teaching. Uh, it's teaching that there are three distinct persons that are yet one. Okay? And then thirdly, each person is filled with God. So each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each are fully God. None, no one of them is less God uh, than the other, all deserving of our worship. Okay, so there's, there's the configuration. If you want to see it visually, some of you are more visual. Um, this, is, this would be the Trinity on a map. So you see God the Father pointing to the center there is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, God the Father is not the Holy Spirit. See on the outside? Not the Son uh, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit, and so on. Um, and so here we have it, um, the mystery of the nature of God. And uh, Lewis was helpful to me on this when I was uh, trying to wrap my head around it. We live in a three-dimensional world of time and space. Uh, and so uh, it's very difficult for us to imagine a God who exists outside of our dimensions, who literally created it all, and therefore his very being, we would probably expect, and when we think about it, would be not according to our laws, uh, a mystery, a transcendence. And so Lewis talks about how when you have one dimension, that would be like a straight line, uh, that would be one dimension, you could take those lines and connect them um, and make a square. And then you have two dimensions. Um, and then probably about as far as our imagination can go, we, we could move to three dimensions where uh, we'd have a cube. So think of a cube with its dimensionality. Um, when we get into something beyond that, the fourth dimension, well, we're into the realm of what? Sci-fi and stuff, because human beings can only sort of imagine what that might be. Uh, and yet, when we come to the definition of God, Lewis points out that we would expect, uh, if he lives in another dimension and outside of time and space, um, that we would come to a mystery. And this is what we have in the Trinity. Um, so let me, let me give you, again, the, just defining this a little further, uh, another statement from a great church creed. Okay? Um, the Lord is one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity are co-eternal in being, co-identical in nature, co-equal in power and glory, having the same attributes and perfections, worthy of the same worship, and obedience. Um, can anybody guess what this great church creed is? We read the Nicene one. Which one is this? This is the Barian, this is our church constitution. 
This is BC's, this is BC, BC's constitution. I wanted you just to see here how all Christian traditions echo, um, this is not something that's been up for debate for centuries. This is, a, this is echoing essentially what we read in the Nicene Creed and what you'd find in any Orthodox uh, tradition about the nature of God. Um, and this is because the, scripts, the scriptures, although there's, there's no one place that we can look and find the word Trinity, um, defines this so clearly both in Old and New Testament. And so I want to I look at that for a minute, just some of the biblical support for where we get this idea um, of God being a trinity. Okay? We're going to look first in Matthew 3, uh, 16 and 17. So if you want to turn there. Um, this is a very important text um, for a number of reasons uh, to sort of encapsulate what we've just said here about the trinity. So I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 Matthew chapter 3, if you're using the seat Bibles, be page 578. So this is at the scene where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus at Jesus' insistence. In verse 16, he's coming up out of the waters, and after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. Okay, now, one of the reasons that this passage is so important is that we see all three members of the Trinity present, the father speaking from heaven about his son, the son, Jesus, in the water, and then the Holy Spirit like a dove descending on him, we see all three members of the Trinity present at the same time. So this explodes this idea that God's oneness is simply a manifestation, that he's just expressing himself three different forms because we have all three members present and active in this passage um, at the same time. And so there are many other texts Uh, that just affirm throughout the New Testament that God is the Father, God is the the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, And so this is not only on the New Testament. So some would say, well, is this just just a New Testament sort of idea, or did it exist in the Old Testament? Um, And after all, the Jews are notoriously monotheistic. So it would be blasphemy to suggest that there is more than one God. Um, In fact, if you've been to Israel or anywhere around a Jewish community— that's practicing, um, you, will, you will probably be familiar with this idea of the Shema that's recited continually in the prayers. Um, this comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, where the Old Testament affirms the oneness of God. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And uh, in the New Testament, um, this theme is picked up and continually affirmed that there is one God. So, for example, the Apostle Paul writing in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, that there is one God. Um, And yet, when we look at the monotheism of the Old Testament, there's something very interesting. We find it right from the beginning in Genesis uh, 1.26, where we have this account of God as he was creating all that is. And he says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, this is obviously an English translation of the Hebrew, but there is a reason why the uh, translators translate this in the plural. Do you notice this? God is having a conversation. So the question becomes with who? Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. 
So the one God here of the Old Testament exists as a plurality. Isn't that interesting? Right from the beginning, that in the, in the tents of the Old Testament Hebrew, within the nature of God, you have this plurality. And then obviously you see the Holy Spirit at work in the Old Testament, coming upon people and being admonitions not to grieve the Holy Spirit. You see theophanies where, there, where as we read the text carefully, we see that the angel of the Lord and these kinds of things are operating and receiving worship. He's operating as God. So scholars, many scholars would suggest that this is, this is a pre-incarnation like appearances of Christ himself. Um, we have the New Testament letters like in Colossians that tell us that all the world was made, right, by Christ and that he holds the whole thing together. And so, and so through the entire text of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, you have this Trinitarian revelation of God. So this is not just the church making this idea up, simply grappling with revelation all through the scriptures. And if you'd like to look at this more thoroughly, a great way to do it is grab our church constitution, you know, at the, at the meeting this afternoon and just look up some of the scriptures that the elders have listed there uh, in support of the Trinity. And you'll see, as you cross-reference those, how extensive this is throughout the scripture, okay? Now, Jesus himself, it's important to note here, came claiming to be much more than simply a messenger about God or a great moral teacher, like many folks will recognize that he was a great moral teacher, um, but they will hold forth or short of um, believing that he is God. But Jesus himself certainly claimed to be. And as you read the New Testament, even casually, there's no escaping this. So let me just give you one example from John 10. Jesus says, the Father and I are one. And the people obviously understood that he said this because you notice monotheistic Jews pick up rocks okay, to start stoning him. I've cut out some verses in the middle. Jesus says, why are you stoning me? Is it for my good works? You know, I've done nothing but bless. Why are you trying to kill me? Jesus says, or the people say, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The reason that Jesus got himself killed, or that he was killed, was not simply because of his teaching. It was because he was claiming to be the I am, to be the Son of God and the, and the incarnate, like in flesh and bones, presence of God. And this is what caused all the fur. And so C.S. Lewis, I told you I was going to be relying on him a lot, says, whatever you're going to say about Jesus, when you actually look at his claims, there can be no mistake. Either he was lying about his identity, he was a lunatic, he was crazy, or he was actually who he claimed to be, the Lord of heaven and earth. And we really only have those options when we look at Jesus in his words. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord. And Jesus never gave up on these claims. I want you to know that this was not just a passing fancy. At, on Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, which is the, which is the origins of which the whole church and people of God now find our marching orders, um, basically ended by claiming the Trinitarian nature of God and his identity. When he said, go and make disciples of all the natures, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so 
when we come to the scriptures themselves and to Christian theology, there is no doubt uh, of this revelation from beginning to end through all the church traditions that the Lord our God is three in one. He's a trinity. Okay, now, you ask the question then, why is this so important? And this is where I want to really dig in for ordinary people like us day to day. Okay, why is this so important? Well, let me just speak a little bit more theologically and then I'll speak personally. From a theological perspective, Francis Schaeffer, a great apologist of the 20th century, he said, if it were not for the Trinity, the Christian revelation of the Trinity, he would not be a Christian. He thought it was that important. He said there, were, there are all kinds of profound questions. Without the Trinitarian nature of God, there would be no answers. Okay, and this is what, this is what he meant by this. He, just for example, this is just a cursory view. You can go into this deeper. If there is no Trinity, the atonement is highly doubtful. Because if Jesus was not God, theologically, you have to then figure out how he could bear the wrath of God for sin on our behalf. As a created being, how would he escape the curse of sin in order to actually atone for it? If there was no Trinity, God didn't save us because if Jesus was not God, a created being saved you and me, not God. And so our salvation would be due to created being and not God. If there was no Trinity, worship would be idolatry. Why are we worshiping the Son and the Holy Spirit, when the Bible clearly tells us not to worship anyone but God. So our whole act of worship would be really an act of idolatry. You see what I'm saying? It is the thread through which, if you pull it, all the answers of the Christian faith actually begin to fall apart. And here's what I want to talk to you about most personally. If there was no Trinity, we could not say that God is personal. And this has profound implications for all of life. So let me, let me uh, delve into that now. By saying this, the Trinity is the source for the conception and the existence of love itself. Now think about how profound this is. There is no other system of ideas or thought that I am aware of that can adequately explain the existence of love in the world other than Christianity flowing from a Trinitarian a Trinitarian God. So, for example, the secularists who tell us that we are all basically a sophisticated evolution of matter and molecules. Well, how do you explain love? Well, then love is reduced to what? A chemical reaction with sort of utility. So, biology put it in there because, you know, we need it to mate and we need it to reproduce and we need it to, you know, or some biological reason. No adequate explanation for love as a reality. If you move to a system of religion that has a monotheism that is not Trinitarian, which I don't, I don't want to start naming the religions, but a lot of them, Lewis then says this, he would say this, there's no adequate explanation for love because if God is love, that statement has no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, 
It was not love. The living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. Now look up at me for a second. Your mind should be exploding right now. Okay? When God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, let us make them, you know what he was doing? He was loving. Because in the, in the origins of God is a community of three in one. He has existed forever in a community of perfect love. And he created not out of necessity, not out of manipulation, out of free love. Let us make, let's, let's do it. Let's make man in our image. And without the Trinitarian God, there is no philosophical explanation, no adequate explanation for something that we would all say, ironically, is the most precious thing in the world. I mean, it's, it's funny. I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I don't know. I don't really go in for that religion stuff, but I just know one thing. God is love. And what they usually mean by that is, you know, free tolerance. But, but they're closer to the truth than they know. God is love. And at the very core of his being, God is love. All that is was made out of love. And the reason that love is real and precious is because it comes from God. Because God, the scripture tells us, is what? He's love. He's love. If there were no Trinity, there would be no source, secondly, for personhood. Now, I'm very interested in this as a social scientist. You know, I was, I was always interested in inner dynamics of human beings and just the, the need, the universal need to give and receive love. I mean, it's amazing. You can stuff human beings full of everything. And if you don't give them love, what do they not have? They have no peace. They have no hope. They have no joy. When 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is perfect and precious and eternal, and it describes it in all these ways, this is the heartbeat of every human being, of every culture, in every place. And do you realize that without the Trinitarian God, without love that existed before, there would be no adequate explanation for human personality. Simply none. And yet, the reason that love is more than a sentiment, why it is a basic human need, actually flows from our design. You were made, according to the scripture, in the image of God. And what is God? He is love. The reason that you have a dream in your heart to both give and receive love. The reason that belonging is so fundamental to your personality is because this is how God made you. And again, the incomparable Lewis, listen. This is from Mere Christianity. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is actually being played out every day in each one of you. You know what, I'm, you know what he's talking about? The drama of love the need to receive it, the longing to give it. Yeah, there's a reason. It's being played out in you. Or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern to take his or her place in the dance. 
There is no other way for the happiness for which we were made. Yeah. And so, at the source of your humanity is actually the Trinity. The love from which you were made and to which, by God's grace, you return. And so then we say this. The reason that the Trinity matters so much to our everyday life is that it is the source of fullness and of joy. The good news of the Christian faith, of the gospel, of all in the hearing of my words, is that the Trinity himself is a never-ending source of all that you were made for. And again, let me, let me give it to you in the words of Lewis. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. You want to be warm? You've got to stand by the fire. If you want to be wet, you've got to get in the water. Now, if you want joy and you want power, peace, and eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. There is a great fountain of energy spurting at the very center of reality. And if you are close to it, the spray will wet you. And if, if you are not, you will remain dry. Do you know that the fundamental need of the human heart is for love and God is the source then we could say it this way, the fundamental need of the human heart is for who? It's for God himself. And the good news of the Christian faith is that there is a way in. There is a way in. This is the story of why Jesus came, what he did, and what he's doing to immerse you in the eternal life and love of the Trinitarian God. And so that we can say this, Number four, the reason that this is so important for us is that at the heart of God who made you out of love is this eternal invitation for every human heart to find his or her way back home. The Trinity wants you to join them. Now listen to this. The aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons. With God himself at the very heart of this community as its prime sustainer and its most glorious inhabitant. Read the Bible. A couple weeks ago when we talked about God being closer than you think, I said the very first scene of God with his creation is he's actually taking walks with them in the garden. It's like God is pretty chatty. Like he just comes in the cool of the evening and he walks with Adam and Eve and the horror of what sin actually brought was not simply the loss of paradise, it was the loss of connection to the source of all that there is. A breaking of fellowship. The place that you should cry in the story of Genesis it's not simply the loss of all the good things. It's when the angel puts the, the swords there and won't let them back in. 
Because with the loss of that connection goes everything that is actually ultimate. And the entire story of the Bible is God stopping at nothing to let you back in. To let you back in. And that's why the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, when there's a vision of the end of all things, it's a vision of joy and celebration and shouting in Revelation 21 because God himself now dwells again with people. This is the vision of God, the dream of God that perfectly matches the dream of every human's heart, the need to love and to belong, to be home. This is what God has done. Now, (laughs) at the Christmas party, I don't know, two Christmases ago, I showed you a painting that my wife had given to me um, that I think is marvelous. It's, uh, It's by a Russian painter named Rublev. It's old. And you look at that and you say, that doesn't look marvelous. That looks strange. Um, let me tell you why I think it's so marvelous. This, is, this painting is titled The Trinity. So what's pictured here is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, they're at a table. The first thing I think is marvelous about it is that there's, a, there's an empty seat. Do you notice in the front? Um, as you look at the painting, you recognize that there's room for one more. Um, and you kind of wonder, like, wonder, who's, wonder who they're waiting on. The second reason I think it's marvelous is that if you could look up at the altar, do you see this little box? Like, it's really faint. A lot of scholars believe that originally when Rublev painted this, there actually was a giant mirror right there. So you would walk up and you would go through this sort of like mental process like, oh, there's room at the table. I wonder, I wonder who could sit there. And then you would look and you would see your own face. See, it's the gospel in a picture. All of it. Beautiful. You see, the Trinity this morning saying again through me, Won't you sit at the table? Did you get a mirror when you came in? How many didn't? Few. Okay, so we have one for you on the way out. Um, This is just small and tiny. Got some stick on the back. Uh, My hope was that you would take it with you as as a reminder of the most incredible invitation that you're ever gonna receive. Now get this, church, not just to dwell in the house of God, like to be a servant or something like that in the courts, but to actually join God, to actually come in through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the recreation that he makes possible to God's original vision, which was to have you close. Because, church, What the Christian message ultimately is about is this. You have been admitted into the inner life of God. Like the Trinity has opened itself and made a seat at the table 
for you. And here's the question. You going to join him? Let's pray. Lord, the wonder of these things is unspeakably great. And yet the opportunity is close as the air we breathe. May we come into your fellowship, live there, and share it with others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.